Well, now we're going to have some spiritual food. We've got a special guest all the way from South Australia, Pastor Jeremy Griffiths. I've known Pastor Jeremy for many, many years. He, uh, Jeremy was born in England and he came with his family. He was a boy at the time from England. And with his parents, they started the Assemblies of God Church in Armadale, which later on they passed on to my father, who was also a pastor, as many of you know that. And so Pastor Jeremy's been a blessing. He used to live in this region. He used to live actually here in Gosnells. He used to have a house in Gosnells somewhere. And um, that's probably why he's such a good guy. Because Gosnells is the centre of the universe. Amen. Pastor Jeremy's ministered in lots of places. He's planted churches. He's been uh, pastored many churches, including churches here in Western Australia. He's also the principal of Alpha Christus Bible College for a number of years. And today he blesses lots of churches like ours. He speaks around the country. He's got a missions heart like we have. And we're just so blessed to have him here today. Ladies and gentlemen, would you put your hands together as Pastor Jeremy comes to minister the word. These are my preaching boots, R.M. Williams, handmade in Adelaide. But I do like your boots. Who did you choose those, or did Rochelle? I chose them. Okay, good. Man of distinction. Uh, He's told me I got to finish at twelve thirty. I would like to tell you a children's story. Is that okay? This is called the White House. Ask me why it's called the White House. Because Bernice and I got married and our reception was in the White House on Dickerson Road. Cost $11.50 per head, you know, a three-course meal in 1879. Everybody looks so better when we smile. You know, God deliver us from sad Christians. God deliver us. You should change this name. No longer real life church. This is happy church. You know, happy. Tell the person next to you and say, that man's happy. (laughs) Are you ready? Yeah, sorry. It isn't. You got the wrong book. I got the wrong book. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, good pick up, Rochelle. I'll have to do it from memory. Here we go. It was the biggest house in town. It was the brightest house in town. And it was the whitest house in town. There was a large courtyard and a garden. Inside were several bedrooms and large family room. And a set of stairs on the outside led to the roof. It was the biggest house in town. And it was called the White House. Henry White lived in the White House with his wife, Frida. Everything in the house was white. A white dining table with white chairs and the walls were painted white and the rugs on the floor were white. Oh, I do like my white house, said Frida. Then they heard knocking on the white front door. It was the mayor. Good morning, Mr and Mrs White. We have some wonderful news. Jesus is coming. We expect a large crowd and we will need the biggest house. Can we use the white house? The Whites were delighted. Henry? That's my, that's my Frida voice. Everybody's saying, Henry? Henry? <laughs> you should go on the stage. That was very good. <laughs> Henry? We will need the place to look really special. I think we need to paint the walls. And uh, the ceiling particularly needs painting. What colour, Frida? 
Well, white, of course, she replied. There were four friends who lived just outside the town, and their names were Abe, Ben, Caleb, and Dan. Have you heard the news? asked Abe. What news? inquired Ben. Jesus is coming to our town, answered Caleb. If we take Phil, there could be a miracle. Phil was their friend. He had been sick for... He does look sick, doesn't he? I mean, <laughs> call the ambulance quick. Phil had been sick for a long time. He was unable to move his arms or legs and spent every day lying on his mat. How will we get him there? asked Abe. We'll have to carry him, suggested Ben. We can take him on his bed, said Caleb. I'm excited, shouted Dan. There's going to be a miracle. Where do you think Jesus will be, asked Abe. At the White House, replied Ben. I know where that is, said Caleb. Let's go. We want to be there early, added Dan. The four friends went to see Phil. Uh, Jesus is coming to our town, announced Abe. We thought you would like to come. But I can't move. How can I get there, asked Phil. We'll carry you, offered Caleb. Let's each grab a corner of the mat. Everyone, lift together. Have you done this before, asked Phil. He sounded nervous. No, but we'll soon learn, they replied. <coughs> the road was very uneven. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Coca-Cola would be better, but water will do. <laughs> do you think God can turn this into Coca-Cola? Water to wine, water to... <coughs> Excuse me, everybody cough. <laughs> the road was very uneven. Ow, shouted Phil as they bumped him once again. This road is very busy, said Abe. Everyone's going the same way, added Ben. Do you think they're going where we're going? asked Caleb. I think they are. When they arrived, the four friends were amazed. Everyone was there. The White House was full. The courtyard was full. Uh, what are we going to do? asked Abe. Oh, I'm sure they'll let us in. <coughs> but they didn't. There was no way in. We were here first. Go to the back of the line. Wait your turn, shouted the crowd. I know, said Caleb. There's the roof. The four friends carried Phil up the stairs to the roof of the White House. It was a difficult climb as they bumped Phil up the stairs. What now? Well, let's remove the tiles and see what's happening inside. But it wasn't easy to lift the tiles and dig through the plaster. I wonder what Mr. White will say about his roof. I wonder what Jesus will say about us interrupting his meeting. The four friends looked through the hole they had made. The room was filled with people, and there was Jesus in the centre of the room. On the front row sat the mayor with some very important people from Jerusalem. Mrs. White whispered to her husband, Look what they've done to my ceiling, and it's only just been painted. No one looked very happy, except Jesus, who smiled at the four friends. Tie some rope to the corners of the mat. Lower him gently. Have you done this before? No, but we will soon learn, replied Caleb. The four friends lowered Phil on his mat right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw Phil, he said to him, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, 
They were the most wonderful words Phil had ever heard. But the important people from Jerusalem were annoyed. Who does this Jesus think he is? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Which is easier to say, he said. Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. I want you to know that I am Jesus the Messiah. He turned to Phil and said, get up, grab your bed, your mat, and go home. Instantly, immediately, Phil felt strength flowing into his body. He could feel his toes. He could move his arms and legs. He jumped to his feet. He was healed. He rolled up his mat, rushed through the crowd, and ran all the way home. And everyone in the crowd were delighted. Well, Mrs. White, Frida, was staring up at the hole in the ceiling and the four friends who were repairing the roof. Henry, said Frida, we will need to paint the ceiling. What color, he said, white. It doesn't matter what color, she declared. We're going to change the name of this house. It's no longer the White House. Jesus came and healed a man. This is now the Miracle House. Isn't that a good story? Ask me where I got it from. God. Actually, you were probably in the meeting when a guy called Roy Hicks Jr. in Melbourne preached on this story and he told it in four different ways from the angle of Mrs. White... Uh, and then, uh, and I thought, well, that always stuck with me. And so I wrote this story. Ask me why I did it. Why did you do it? Because I want children to enjoy reading the Bible. Because there should be, never be anything boring about the stories of Jesus. Yes. We, we need to make faith interesting for our children. Every generation needs the gospel presented to them in the language of that generation. God deliver us from being tied to history when Jesus is the same. Yes, today. He is the today Jesus. He's the now Jesus. He is the relevant Jesus. Whoopee. So, so actually, this is one of six books in a series. Uh, one's called uh, Cyril the Short-Sighted Camel, Dinner in the Den. The camel one is about Christmas. Dinner in the Den is Daniel. Uh, Percy the Pebble, you know, um, and then this one, The Miracle Lunch. Somebody said, what's this potato head on the... Uh, this, is, this is a bun, okay? Speak to the illustrator. And then Olivia and the, and the widow's oil, and the one that I, uh, I just read to you called the White House. Uh, number seven is on the way. I'm just waiting for the artist to finish. And these books are available in Kurong. How much would you buy that on Kurong? Yeah. Sorry? How much on Kurong? How much would you buy that from Kurong? You're asking a deaf person. What? <laughs> About 20 bucks. Did you hear us say 20 bucks? Yeah. Okay, here's the deal. You got 20 bucks? You offered me 20 bucks for this. I said Kurong. Kurong. Oh. Because they're ripoffs. You can order this today from Kurong at $9.95. But uh, Sunday special is available at $5. However, I now have to tell you that those terrible people in the first service bought them all. And not only bought them all, but bought eight sets unpaid, uh, paid for that I'm now going to have to mail tomorrow from Adelaide. 
So if you enjoyed that story, it's one of um, six in the series, and you can have them. Six by five is... Uh, you can have them for $20. Uh, isn't that an amazing price? Ah, oh, Jeremy, you must be a very wealthy man, you know, wearing R.M. William boots and a fancy blue coat. Uh, I mean, you, you, maybe, maybe all these book sales, you're making a million. Ask me what we do with the money. We are committed to three uh, ministry centers in the Philippines so that by you buying these books enable us to give them to the Philippines in LBC boxes. Anybody from the Philippines, if, uh, you understand the LBC box? You know, we, we fill them up with 200 books, clothes, and send them off to Pangasinan and to uh, Leyte and to um, Lapu Lapu, which is in Cebu, yes. And so... It's exciting, isn't it? It it is exciting. It's amazing what a little boy from Gosnells can do. We used to live at 5 Rabina Street, which is off Verna Road, and my dad bought that house, a quarter-acre block and a three-bedroomed house, one bathroom, inside toilet, not an outside dunny, and uh, it was 1967, and he bought it for $10,000. Why didn't he buy five or six? Mad. So, So there you go. Do you enjoy that story? I enjoy that story. Uh, so, so in the middle of COVID, I saw a, uh, a sign on the back of a bus, we will help you tell your story. And I thought, wow, I've written these kids' books, uh, open universities. Have I just lost a button? No. <laughs> Let me have a look at the button. That's my throat sweet. <laughs> Taste it. It's got a bit of... So, so here are open universities inviting people to study at university. And so I thought, I'm going to do a Master of Creative Writing. I thought this will help me write more kids' books. And so I applied to Macquarie University in Sydney, and uh, they turned me down. Everybody say, oh, dirty rats. So they, they offered me, is it Edith Cowan? Is that, is that what it is? Yes. A bachelor in creative writing. But that's a four-year course. I was 69. I mean, Jesus will have come back, you know, or, or, or I'll have gone. So I didn't, so, so I went home and, and had a pity party, you know, rejection. I went home and wrote a book called The Miracles of Jesus. 70 chapters, big print that even people with impaired hearing can read. <laughs> Uh, and big print, simple words in the vocabulary. Now, here's an interesting thing. Do you know that academics write in the vocabulary of academics? Yes, they do. And boy, you can't understand it. No idea. So I thought, I'm going to write in the vocabulary of a teenager so everybody can understand. Uh, and I, I wrote it in short paragraphs. Each chapter is uh, 800 words. You can read it in four four to five minutes. There are sermons at the end of one if you wanted to preach them. Uh, and uh, if, you, uh, if you were at the men's breakfast, one of the sermons came out of that, uh, the fisherman's front door. That was yesterday morning. So that book in Kurong, how much, how much in this one do you think? Oh, you're the good one. So, so at least $50. Okay, actually they're on sale in Kurong for $29.95. But uh, today, Sunday special, 20 bucks. 
uh, oh, Jeremy, you're obviously making a lot of money. Uh, this is actually my endeavor to, to raise money for missions. I thought, what can I do to help our school in Bolivia? What can I do to help these pastors in the Philippines? What can I do to help plant churches in Poland? So I put together a CD, Jeremy's Favorite Love Songs. <laughs> Look into my eyes, you will find just what you mean. So even when I gave them away with free sets of steak knives, they still didn't <laughs> But you, you, don't do, you don't do what you're not called to do. If you do what you're not called to do, you've got to do it in your own strength. So God had given me the ability to write. So I started writing kids' books, and I started writing resources for people. And uh, th this has been a very, very successful book. Uh, what does it say there? One. One. What does that mean? This one. There's more to come. <laughs> Number three is out on the desk. It's called Beginnings. Genesis, the book of beginnings. And 50 chapters. It is unbelievable. You need to read chapter 38. It's about Tamar, one of the most amazing women in the Old Testament. It is R-rated. That'll sell the book. <laughs> it is an amazing story called Don't Spill the Seed. And uh, here's a guy who's got royal seed and he's spilling it on the floor. Never trample the word of God because the word connects you with your destiny. That's number three. So if this is number one, Genesis number three, where's number two? Where's number two? It's in my computer. Uh, 50, 56 chapters. I've written 16 of them. And it's called The Powerful Words of Jesus. And the sermon you heard in, in the nine o'clock session is the first chapter of that book, The Sinner Seeking Savior. If I say it again, you'll get spit on your face. So, <laughs> so, so uh, here's, here's now, this is my confession. When I get tired, I get silly. So my, if my wife was sitting there, she'd say, shut up and get on with what you're supposed to be doing. But my wife's not there. You know, so, so uh, we... Ask me, ask me what I do. I help people understand the Bible. It's not enough to read it. God wants you to understand it. So I, I've developed these books. This is, there are 19 in this series. And this is the latest one. This is the Gospel of Mark. It's called The Servant's Son. Fascinating that the Son of God is also the servant of God. When we think that God is so high, <laughs> the Son of Man didn't come to, to, be, to be served, but he came to serve. And so this book goes like this. Here's the text, here's the explanation, and here are the sermons or the studies or how you can apply them to your life. And so the idea is you read a spread a day. So these books are available at $10 each. There's a set on John, three of them, three tens. You can have those. Have a look at them. He will sell them to you. Raju. What a fine man he is. What a destiny he has on his life. It's not where you come from. It's where you're going. Oh, Jeremy, what do you do with the money from this? 
We actually got involved in 2007 in planting churches in Poland. Some of you are aware of this. And from 2007 to 2019, when COVID started, we were able to fund the planting of 10 new churches in Poland. One of those churches died. One merged. And the other eight are doing really well. In fact, three of them have planted other churches. Now, that is exciting. That's like your kids having kids. You know, not only have we planted churches, we've got some grandchildren churches in, in Poland. And so when I went there for the 23rd time in March this year, I went to find out how they're getting on, how they're getting on with the war, how are they doing in church planting, and discovered that Poland is beginning to surge in church planting again. And so I made a commitment that we would provide startup gifts for new churches. And in the month of May and July and this month, we've been able to provide funds for three new churches in Poland. One of them comprised of Ukrainian refugees. How exciting is that? So that's what we do. Ah, Was that interesting? Was it inspiring? Did you feel good about it? Because now I'm going to preach a different sermon to what I preached this morning. Now, now, here's the good news. You can hear what I preached this morning at the 9 o'clock on the, on the Watts's. But nobody's going to hear this one except you. Oh, Jeremy, this must be an old sermon. No, I wrote it about three weeks ago. So it's hot off the press. Good. Fabulous. Okay. Here we go. Daddy, said the boy, who had just started primary school, and had learnt about the mathematical symbols, pluses and minuses and multiplications and divisions, and he said to his dad in a cathedral, what is that big plus sign? <laughs> the little boy was actually more correct than he could ever imagine yeah. because God's cross is actually the biggest plus sign in the universe. At the cross, God added love and mercy and grace and subtracted our sin. At the cross, God added salvation and subtracted our condemnation. At the cross, God added light and life and subtracted darkness and death. At the cross, God added us to his family and subtracted the fact that we were once aliens. At the cross, God added exchange our unrighteousness for the righteousness of his son. Yes, the cross is God's big plus sign. There have been many engineering works in the history of mankind where they have designed and built bridges and buildings and dams and Indians have now got a lander on the moon. Amazing engineering. But the greatest engineering feat was the carpenter of Nazareth who with just two planks of wood and four nails spanned the gulf between earth and heaven. I want to talk to you about the miracles of the cross. There was the miracle of the supernatural darkness. It was not a solar eclipse because at the time of the Passover, which was a full moon, it's impossible to have an eclipse. There was the tearing of the veil in the temple, the the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the Jews believed that God lived in the holy place. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. How big... uh, 
That curtain was something like 16 metres high. I reckon this ceiling's probably about four. Three. three. So, so multiply five times. That's the height of the curtain. How thick was it? It was actually 10 centimetres thick. And it wasn't just material, but it was embroidered material. It required 300 men to move if it needed to be manipulated. But here is the wonderful news of Christianity. Religion tries to tear its way up to God. But Christianity is God tearing open, not to let God out, but to let people in to his presence. We know when Jesus, we know when Jesus was crucified. He was actually crucified at 9 a.m., That was the time of the morning offering. We know that Jesus died at 3 p.m. And that's the time of the afternoon sacrifice. So here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, laying down his life for the sins of the world. There were several groups of people at the cross. There was Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, other women, and there was John, the disciple. There was the Roman centurion and a squad, maybe of four soldiers, who crucified Jesus. There were two thieves, bandits, revolutionaries, and there were the chief priests and religious leaders who mocked Jesus. And between 9 a.m. and noon, Jesus spoke to each of these groups of people. To the soldiers who crucified him, he had a wonderful word. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. (laughs) I think that centurion had seen many people die, but he'd never heard somebody say, Father, would you forgive them? It tells us that one of the greatest things in life is forgiveness. But we have been forgiven to forgive others. And forgiveness is only forgiveness when you pass it on. Jesus then speaks to Mary, and he says to his mother, a woman, dear lady, that man will care for you. And then he speaks to John and says, John, look after this woman as if she was his own mother. Here is Jesus dying, and yet he's still caring for others. To the thief, between the hours of 9 a.m. and noon, Jesus speaks to them. The the, the two thieves, they, they are dying righteously, justly, and one of them blasphemes, and the other one turns to Jesus. Jesus, whose face is marred more than anybody's. Jesus, whose back has been so damaged, it's like a plowed field. Here is Jesus, who is being mocked by the religious leaders. And the thief says, Lord, will you remember me when you come to your kingdom? What amazing faith that man had. He said, I know who you are. I deserve this death that I'm having. But, but hey, you, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And I see the day when you come into your kingdom. Is there a place for me? Jesus said, well, you need to do the Alpha course. <laughs> Ten weeks, Wednesday nights, dinners included. He said, I reckon I've got about 10 minutes left, let alone a 10-week course. Well, you need to be baptized. He said, well, I would but I'm sort of stuck. Well, have you paid your tithes? It's in my pocket if somebody else. No, no, no. What does Jesus say? You see, if you look, you live. If you look to Jesus, you will live. 
And all you need is a tiny bit of faith to link with his amazing grace. And Jesus says, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. I don't know everything about heaven, but I do know this. Heaven is where Jesus is. And Jesus said, you will be with me. That's the miracles of the cross. Then at midday, a darkness came over the land. The Bible doesn't give us a reason. I mentioned that, uh, you know, it wasn't an eclipse. Dr. Luke's gospel says that the sun stopped shining. Various historians around the Roman Empire will record in their histories that there was this unusual darkness that lasted for three hours. Ask me my opinion. Say, Jeremy, what was happening in the darkness? I believe this, that that was the moment when God placed the sins of the world on Jesus. When the one who knew no sin was made sin for us. And it was so awful that God could not look upon his son. And the world went dark. The lights went out. It was the darkest day of history. Israel were crucifying their king. They were murdering their Messiah. The world had rejected their Savior. And it is during this time that Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was the physical agony of the cross. I'm thirsty. But there was the spiritual battle. This was the spiritual conflict. As Jesus is wrestling for the souls of all mankind, he's carrying away the sins of the world. And for three hours in darkness, he hangs upon the cross. And now it's three o'clock. And the battle is over. The end appears near. Matthew says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, But John, who was standing at the foot of the cross, didn't just hear the voice, he heard the words. And he heard this last great cry. It is finished. Every 50 years in Israel, there was a year of jubilee. This was when there was no work and no planting. And in the year of jubilee, three things happened. Number one, all debts were cancelled. And everybody with a mortgage said, what, what year is it? To, is this the year? All slaves were freed and all inheritances were returned to their original owners. Family land was given back. You see, God designed Israel to be an egalitarian society where there were no super rich and no super poor. So on the 50th year, the 10th day of the 7th month, there would be a trumpet that would sound from Jerusalem. And like a a series of beacons on another hill, they would hear the trumpet and blow their trumpet. And the trumpet would sound throughout the land. And Psalm 89 says this, How blessed are the people who hear the joyful sound. The trumpet of Jubilee. It would be possible. Because it's every 50 years that you could be born after a year of Jubilee. And you could die before the Jubilee was sounded next. 
Oh, how blessed are people who hear the joyful sound that debts are cancelled and slaves are freed and land is restored. And when Jesus cried out with this loud voice, when Jesus declared, it is finished, he was saying, this is the year of Jubilee. He's taking the trumpet of Jubilee to his mouth and he's saying, it's not just a year of Jubilee, but from every year from now on, these are the days of grace. This is the time of God's favour. This is the era of forgiveness and freedom. The debt of our sin has been cancelled. The captives of sin have been set free. And everything you've lost has been restored. And the good news that I need to tell you is that we are still living in days of grace. We're still living in the year of the Jubilee. It is finished. Thank you for your overwhelming response to that. Show me the next slide. It is finished. You know, Pastor David, that the Greek word is to tell a stay. What does it mean? To describe what it is finished means, we need to go to the accountant's office. Because the word it is finished was actually used by accountants. They would check the accounts of somebody and they would say there's a debt owing. Someone's facing bankruptcy. Their debt is beyond their means to pay. And then someone else comes and pays the debt. And the accountant would write across the ledger, paid in full. Nothing more else needs to be paid. It used to be that you, in department stores, if you didn't have the money to buy something, you could go to the lay-by section. Anybody ever had a lay-by? Maybe you wanted to buy a colour television or, you know, or a washing machine, and you will go to the lay-by section, you would pay them a deposit, and they would fill out this big card with your name, address, the item, and how much. You'd have to give a deposit, and then every week or fortnight, whenever you were paid, you would go back to the lay-by section and pay off a little bit of money, and they would record it on the card until the day came when the last payment was made, and they got this big stamp, and they stamped the card, paid in full. My account in heaven was bankrupt. I had a debt I could not pay. Things that I had done and said and thought, things that I had inherited from humanity. But Jesus came and he paid my debt in full and he stamped my account. It is finished. Nothing more needs to be paid. It's closed. It's finished. It's over. To understand it is finished, we need to go to a workshop. Because the phrase, it is finished, was used by craftsmen and artists. So the craftsman, maybe he's been fashioning a piece of furniture for months. He chose the wood, shaped the timber, polished it, varnished it, polished it, varnished it, until finally he would say, it is finished. And he would sit down and admire his work. Nothing more needs to be done. Everything needed had to be done has been done. Everything required in the specifications have been accomplished. It's finished. And when Jesus died on the cross, the master carpenter from heaven declared over, you read this, we are his workmanship. And he looked back and he sat down. Nothing more needs to be done. It was also used by artists who would be painting either a portrait or a landscape or whatever, and it would always be covered up. 
until it was finished. And then the day would come when the artist would declare, it's finished, it's perfect, it's complete. The picture I saw in my mind is now on the canvas, it's done. And God, the master craftsman, is also the divine artist. Everything prophesied in the old has been fulfilled. Everything he planned has come to pass. And the masterpiece that began in his mind before eternity has come. And Jesus declares, it's complete, it's done, it's finished. The Old Testament era has come to a close And a new era has begun. The old is concluded. The new is here. And the new is better by far. And Jesus declared, this was the purpose why I came. I came to pay the debt. And I came to finish the work. Never give me a tool. Never give me a screwdriver. Because my gifts are not with my hands other than to write. My wife discovered very early on that if something was broken, don't touch it, Jeremy. Leave it. Because if you touch it, it will cost us a lot more money to fix. Do you know that some people try to improve God's finished work? They think, oh, I don't, hand me the chisel and the hammer. But the moment you touch it, you've ruined it. And the moment you touch God's plan of salvation, you actually weaken its power. And then a famous artist. When we were at Girouin, because for 10 years we pastored the church in Girouin, Tom Grigson was there. And on Sunday afternoons, we allowed a group of indigenous people to plant a church in the Girouin church building. And at the end of our time there, they gave me an Aboriginal painting. Not the dots, but actually a landscape. It looked a bit like Calbarry to me, or you know, the red soil, and, and it, it was quite good. And we framed it and hung it on our wall. And a famous Australian artist, who you would know, came to our house and looked at it. And do you know what he said? I can improve that. Yeah. He said, give me a felt pen. I said, the moment you touch that, the value's gone. And there are some people who look at the picture of Christ, his work on the cross, He's finished work. And they think, I really don't like that. I don't like the idea that he's the sinless saviour. Let's cover that up. I don't like the idea of an atoning sacrifice. I don't like the idea of a resurrection. And so they, they shade over parts of the picture of Jesus. Let me tell you, this is real life church. And we're not touching up the masterpiece. We're not covering over things in the Bible we don't like. We believe in Jesus. We believe he's the saviour. We believe he's the son of God. We believe that he paid our debt. We believe in this uh, transaction where he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And we're not going to meddle with that. It is finished. To understand it is finished, you need to go to the battlefield because the word was also used by a conquering army. You see, the cross was a battlefield. God had promised the seed of the woman will, can't hear you, Genesis 3.15, you need to buy my book, the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. I reckon the devil thought he had won. I reckon the devil thought I've got him hanging on a cross. Curse is everybody that hangs on a tree. I've got an idea that the devil thinks the son of life is dying. But I've got some news for you. It might be Friday. Sunday's coming. (laughs) Devil, you might bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. You can recover from a heel wound, 
but a crushed head, it's over, it's finished. And that's what Paul says in Colossians because he uses military terms and he says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers. He stripped them of their weapons. He plundered the devil's kingdom. He stripped them of their hide, left them naked, revealed what they were truly like and triumphed over them at the cross. It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. Jesus has triumphed. It is finished. The challenge has been faced and answered and overcome and resolved and conquered. Can you hear the hammer? Hammering in the nails. Colossians says this. Jesus did the hammering that day. And he hammered to the cross our sin. He hammered on the cross the Old Testament law that was against us. And he hammered it and left it there. And the cross, the the devil thinks, I've got him pierced on the cross. But at the cross, Jesus pierced the devil to the ground, nailed him to the ground and won the victory. And so we declare today, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. Satan, you are defeated and you are under our feet. And so when Jesus cried out, it is finished. He'd been to the accountant's office and declared that my debt is paid in full. He'd been to the artist's studio and said the masterpiece is complete. And he's been to the battlefield where he won an absolute victory over death and hell, sin and Satan. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Somebody say, Yes. Yes. Somebody shout, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because my wife isn't here, we will say, Whoopee. (laughs) There were two more things that Jesus said. He then says, Father. Remember at 12 o'clock, he had said, My God, my God, where have you forsaken me? But at 3 p.m., he says this, Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen very carefully. Jesus died, but he actually, he entered death. And he went down into the grave. And he went down into Hades. And he knew the promise. I will not leave my holy one in the grave, nor let his body see corruption. It's an incredible statement of confidence. Sunday's coming. Resurrection's coming. The grave, I'm going to ascend with the keys of death and of hell. I've now got two minutes. It's a good sermon, isn't it? It's a great sermon. It is. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying this. So I've got a runny nose. I do, I do. But if I'm going to blow my nose, which is rather large, I want you to all cough. Wait, 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 wait. One, two, three. Thank you. Much better. Is that better? Much better. So, <clears throat> an amazing miracle. The centurion who's been on battlefields and watched men die. A centurion who has ordered the crucifixion of many people in the past has now watched an innocent man 
He's watched everything about the crucifixion. And he says, surely, this is the Son of God. The miracles of salvation, the miracle of the dying thief, the miracle of the centurion. Here's the interesting thing, Pastor David. The dying thief got saved before Jesus had died. Because just one drop of his blood is enough. His blood was shed and it saved the guy. In 1960, in July 1960, in an exhibition center in Birmingham, England, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was eight years old. Oh, what does a snotty-nosed little kid from the back streets of Birmingham understand about salvation? (laughs) You don't need to understand salvation. You just need to respond. I still don't understand salvation. It's still so great. And I've often thought... You know, the, the, the man, I stood at the front of him with hundreds of others, and a guy came and prayed for me and prayed the sinner's prayer. I have often thought, I wonder, I wonder if he realized that that little eight-year-old boy would one day preach the gospel around the world. It's not where you start. It's where you finish. Who would have thought that day at Point Perrin when you responded to Vince Smith's message? That, that, did he ever think that you'd one day pastor a great church? Did he really think that? I don't think he did. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. So here's a dying thief on the cross. Don't know his name? Heaven does. Here's a centurion, a Gentile, a Gentile. Get saved before any Duke. It's amazing. That's the outrageous grace of God. That's the miracle of salvation. So in the month of May this year, my wife and I went back to England, first time after COVID, and I went back to Birmingham and preached in the church, in, in one of the churches, and, and told this story. You know, I, on July 1960, I gave my life to Jesus, and the guy shouted out, I was there, and I got saved. So here we are in Gosnells. I reckon we should all thank God for his salvation. And we also can put your hand over your heart. Let's speak to ourselves. Speak your name. And I'm going to say this, Jeremy, it is finished. Come on, speak it out. Put your name there. David, it's finished. Come on, speak it out. It's finished. The debt is paid. You know, the, the battle is over. The masterpiece is complete. We can hear the sound of jubilee. We've heard the trumpet. The debts are paid. The slaves are free. Lost inheritances are restored. It's finished. You heard your pastor say today, it's not what you do. You heard him say that. I didn't ask him to do that. That's God saying, that's God reminding us. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. It's finished. It's over. Thank you, Jesus.